Hey everyone, uh, sorry for the absence. Uh, I've been sick, and this episode that we recorded almost fell apart. Uh, Chris's phone was messed up, and uh, so young Neocon and I just sort of started doing the episode because we didn't know if Chris was going to show up. Uh, so I'm recording this intro because we didn't actually do an intro because we just started talking about everything. Uh, so <laughs> uh, today's episode is about Super Freakonomics. And it's got Young Neocon and me and Chris. And I hope you like it. Enjoy. So this chapter, he he talks about how uh, women used to be prostitutes in, well, he says prostitutes. I I guess we should say sex workers now. Um, So he he talks about how uh, a lot more women used to be sex workers because it was legal for them to do that. And they used to make a lot more money, and he kind of puts it in like a like a sort of proto-fascist narrative where uh, he's talking about uh, men wanting more sex than they can get for free, and like there's like supply and demand with you know sex. Yeah. Like like sex is a literal marketplace, and yeah, uh, <laughs> I I do not like this stuff. <laughs> um. Well. Okay. Like, but even before he gets to this, let's just look at all the bullshit of this stuff. Like, he says, where was it? Yeah, women who went to Harvard earn less than half as much as the average Harvard man. And then he says, uh, even when they controlled for other stuff, uh, accounted for full-time full employees, major professional, they found it still earned 30% less. And then he says, what can I possibly account for this? Uh, there are a variety of factors. Women are more likely to leave the workforce or downshift their careers to make a family. Even within high-paying occupations like medicine and law, women tend to choose specialties that pay less. First of all, right. two things. He literally just says in the analysis before that that they controlled for exactly that phenomenon, first of all. Right. But, second, but secondly, he says choose to specialties that pay less, right? And even in the neoclassical- jobs just naturally pay less, and they happen right. to be the ones that choose that. <laughs> but, well, but it's interesting because even in the neoclassical economics literature on gender discrimination, where they do in fact try to explain away a lot of it. Uh, but by the way, they what they call what they use as the metric of discrimination is what they call the unexplained uh, wage gap. Which, right? I mean, at a, if you add an infinite number of variables, there will be nothing unexplained. So it's kind of annoying, but. The, but yeah, um, the joke I always make is if you control for all of the things that cause the wage gap, there's actually no wage gap. Exactly. <laughs> right. And then but 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 the, even in those papers where they do that, they say you, you can't impute uh, even if it is yes, in these papers, they make it very clear to say even if, even if this were a free choice in the substantive sense that we usually mean the word that still doesn't uh, prove it's non-discrimination because preferences are endogenous. So if you live in a sexist culture and you internalize the norms that you're supposed to go to these professions, then in fact, even though it looks like free choice and there's no explicit compulsion, it's still a result of the discrimination. They're trying. They even admit that in the fucking neoclassical. That's like a. That's like a. Like not even like even like the right wingers would admit that. Not all of them, but even but in the mainstream <laughs> journals, they say that. So it's just like it, it, it's just like uh, it's absurd. Also, yeah, on the other, on the, on the second page, he, he has this line. This is an incredibly disgusting line in a book. I can't even believe it. But it's like from a 1950s. It's like from Mad Men. It says, plotting the absences against employee productivity ratings, the economists 
determined that this that this menstrual absenteeism accounted for 14% of the difference in earnings at the bank. Like that phrase, menstrual absenteeism. Whew. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> and what's amazing too is that they're talking about productivity at a bank, but they don't they don't specify what sections of the bank and it's not like you can met like how do you measure productivity except in earning i don't know yeah you could just talk about like how fast they um they draw the paper money you know per person exactly how many paper monies they make (laughs) or like or like or like if they're a teller how many customers they serve per hour like what's the what's the productivity i think productivity in business usually means like dollars out per dollars in so like if you invest a million dollars in the bank and you get a billion dollars out it's like a thousand dollars per dollar or whatever but that's that's the, what they're trying to explain, right? Because well, they're yeah, trying. Of course. <laughs> so it's so so they they clearly they can't use that metric, or else it, you know what I'm saying, right? So they had well, to. I mean, that's all, all other how all metric. of economics basically works is like <laughs> they they try to explain things that happen in dollars by trying to transform a measure in dollars to something else that it not that it isn't necessarily in saying that it's like this thing that relates to like physical phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Nitzan and Bickler. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like them. Shout out to them. But um, <laughs> um, there's there's one really crazy line in this chapter to me, which is, uh, if for instance men convicted of hiring a prostitute were sentenced to cast- castration, the market would contract in a hurry. That's like what twelve year olds think. That's like when you're in middle <laughs> school, you're like. Man, if they just cut guys' balls off, they would stop committing crimes like that. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, also, what's funny about it is that it's just like um, it's just like false because what if if only one percent of people who did it were caught, then uh, uh, I bet you a fair number would still just be like, and then you still have to go through a trial or whatever. A fair number would be like. Uh, yeah, I mean, he even talks in this through this whole chapter about how little prostitution is like prosecuted because um, like the cops like let it happen you know or they uh or they, what they used to do up until it was made illegal only in the last 10 years was, was just sleep with the prostitute and then arrest them right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. can you <laughs> that that literally just became illegal in michigan i think until uh, like a couple years ago jesus but it's a uh, Suffice it to say, these are not whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we talked about we talked about crime a lot. So, I mean, I don't know how much more there is. Well, to mine out I, of this chapter. If you think about it, um, actually, everything is crime. So, <laughs> um, uh, what, what do what we do, should start what, that ideology? Like, instead of like the voluntarist who thinks everything is a market, like everything is a crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, no, no, but uh, but ah, uh, but you see, if you think about it, eating is a crime. You know, yeah, right. You're literally murdering something that's alive. Mm-hmm. Fellas, is it gay to eat? <laughs> Yeah, you're literally putting it in your mouth, and it was prepared by another man's hand. So, I mean, it's basically, you just, wow, you're putting you're putting uh, spinach in your mouth, just like a dick. Right. <laughs> 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 Notoriously dick-like uh, food, spinach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, spinach and uh, and uh, um, uh, 
uh, artichoke. Yeah. Art, artichoke is the most, uh, because you split it open. That's how, you know, but, um, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> artichoke. What are you, what are you artichoking on dick? Ooh. Oh, oh fuck. Artichoke me, daddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the next chapter is suicide bombers should buy life insurance or whatever. It's, part of the subtitle Fucking of the book hell. uh yeah really great stuff um so he talks about terrorism and how it's usually middle class educated people yeah um which apparently is similar a similar profile to revolutionaries as well what can he does he wait what's like do you know what citation he gives uh no i didn't write that down. If, if it's who i think it is but just the chicago suicide bombing project which would probably who it would probably be then he's told, he's like he's about to say something as he is wont to do that is in direct contradiction to the person he is citing but anyway <laughs> I, mean, I have to check <laughs> but anyway let me um, see let's see he he brings up the like the high cost of security theater with like no political analysis to it it's just like yeah uh you know it's like a technical argument it's like uh you know it costs so much and does so little and you know well it's just a bad idea i guess not because like it's like a racist institution or anything like that or like it's a you know method of controlling people or anything like that it's just like Mm -hmm. uh yeah it doesn't get results which is why it's bad right right results Yeah, he kind of goes all over the place in this chapter because he, he then goes uh, to talking about uh, emergency rooms and how the ER didn't really exist prior to the 80s. And now the ER makes up 56% of medical traffic um, and has barely any surge capacity. But he there's like no discussion of how privatization affects this problem. But like, that's, The fact wait. that people don't can't get health care through the normal means and so they have to go to the emergency room. Right. He doesn't talk about that at all. But wait, before he even says this, right, he says, terrorists tend to be drawn from well-educated middle-class or high-income families, despite a few exceptions, the Irish Republican Army and perhaps the Tamil Tigers. Now, first of all, because um, the person I thought he was going to cite is Robert Pape, who wrote, who wrote the book Boss, Dying to Win. And he also does point out the middle-class educated thing, but he also points out uh, that suicide bombers are vastly more likely to be women than other types of uh, uh uh, like soldier basically hmm. um, and and oh no other types of suicide so yeah oh, okay. uh, and uh, T- Tamil Tigers are the ones who invented the uh, suicide bombing tactic so, so saying to, just saying oh we, have, we can hand wave them away is very funny because <laughs> both the IRA and the Tamil Tigers were um, secular and when P- Pape wrote the book it's not true anymore because the Iraq war has gone on so long but when Pape wrote the book and suicide bombing as a tactic was more wi- widely evenly distributed. The, the research found that actually religious people were less likely to do it, and actually more of the suicide bombers, including in the Middle East, tended to be secular and Marxists. But then, you know, whatever. But anyway, uh, uh, the explanation here is just like I don't know. Uh, also, this thing about let's see. Uh, Terrorist profile seems like quite a bit of a typical revolutionary. Uh, in some of these cases, yeah, a lot of these people are um, middle class. Most of them are professional class. I mean, they're people like uh, doctors, lawyers, engineers, military officers, teachers, 
Those are the big ones because, but that is, that's just this annoying conflation of middle class with like middle income, whatever. And then, uh, let's see. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's such a, such a flagrant uh, uh, weirdness with this stuff. It's just like the, the biggest predictor of suicide bombing, first of all, is occupation, right? Uh, suicide bombings have only ever been used in the context of occupation against an asymmetric power. That's the first result Tape finds. And that holds up even after the years. The second is, is they primarily are directed against democracies because an authoritarian government would respond to a suicide bomb by saying, who gives a shit? You just killed our own civilian. We don't care. Whereas in a democracy, it can drive people to vote them out. You know what I mean? So okay. that's what happened. In, that's what happened in Spain, for example. Um, the other point is that, uh, uh, like, uh, oh, um, the religion matters in as much if, as if the religion of the occupier and occupied are different. But, like, let's say uh, both sides are Christian and there's no effect of the religion. Uh, and the other thing that he found that the reason the middle class people were all into this, were the ones more likely to do this, is they had higher ranks of like, higher degrees of like social ties, participation in social organizations were more likely to be um, like political activists in the first place, which is a consistent mm -hmm. result, or at least in like the leadership core of it. Um, and like, and like any army, middle-class people tend to go up to sort of the opposite level. Right. Um, so, or the equivalent of it. So the reason that the high middle-class people do it is because they believe in the cause, they have high social ties and they think they're serving like, um, their, their, you know, people. So, um, uh, yeah. Anyway, anyway, I just my point is is that there's a very powerful social explanation for this, namely the degree of social ties and um, like uh, social status and the loss thereof, asymmetries of power, um, a lot of all these other kinds of things that predict uh, suicide attacks. That yeah. Anyway, this they sort of actually kind of just kind of they work against the thought process here because in there are incentives but the incentives are not the ones that they're thinking about that is all like way more interesting than what he talks about in the book <laughs> the, the book dying to win is a fucking good book oh yeah I, I highly recommend it it's not i think some of it has been shown to be wrong in the long run but most of it's true nice hmm. yeah but yeah i don't know it's really funny yeah it's just, yeah so if the, he shows like in these countries, like if the occupation stops, so so do the suicide bombing. Like so it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't. There's no other thing. And and speaking of like not really bringing up occupation, um, he brings up the statistic that as many people die in traffic accidents each year as troops have died since 1982, and he mm. says that like uh, no more U.S. troops have died during wartime than during peacetime. Like. Uh, during peacetime, they die in, like, training accidents. And suicide. Yeah. But it's like, okay, that's not true for, like, every war. So <laughs> the reason that it's happening for the current wars is they're, like, very safe because there's such a high power asymmetry. Well, it's true since uh, probably since Vietnam. Right. And But even before then, um, uh, something like... 
Well, be, because the bulk when in these total wars like World War One and World War Two, I mean, it's like everybody else is getting killed too. So it's just right. like, uh, uh, yeah, I, there's, I don't know, but uh, yeah. also <laughs> another thing is that like who is counted as a troop and who is counted as a civilian is always like fraught because they depend on ideological considerations, right? So anyway. Um, so I mentioned the traffic thing. We'll, we'll come back to that in a, in a minute. Let's see. He concludes the chapter by finally talking about how like a British science nerd used banking algorithms to do mass surveillance to stop terrorism. Yeah. Um, yeah. As though, by the way, the banks aren't already, uh, doing that. Like, (laughs) like, uh, (laughs) what, like what book, what was it? I forget which one I read, but which of the many books I've read on this subject, but it was talking about how, what is it? Like, like four of the leading CEOs of these big banks had been caught knowingly laundering money for both drug cartels and terrorist organizations. And Obama's administration refused to prosecute because it would be quote unquote, too destabilizing to the economy. But then they just fired the CEO the next week anyway. So clearly it wouldn't have been. And then, (laughs) so it's just, I don't know. It's absurd. And it's kind of like, I don't know that that's like half the point of a bank is to like spy. Yeah. To spy and to control the distribution of political power, you know, and and it's and insurance companies and, um, right. Uh, state bureaucracies, census bureaucracies. I mean, Uh all, all all of what their big, their trade is the information they gather and mobilize and also that they have money, but, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so I don't understand like why the next chapter is in here at all. Uh, so he starts talking about Kitty Genovese, which mm-hmm. makes me think mm-hmm. that in a darker timeline, he would be Rorschach, not like as, as in like a, a tough, cool guy, but like as in a smelly <laughs> fascist that eats cold beans and like <laughs> shit out of people for doing crimes. <laughs> Levitt's journal, October 12th, 1985. Tonight, an economist died in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch that movie. I'd watch the shit out of that movie. <laughs> well, um, wait, wait. In the original one, which McCoy isn't it? Alan Moore wrote Watchmen, right? Yes. And he's a fucking anarchist. <laughs> like, Alan like Moore is, Ro- yeah, yeah, not Rorschach. No, but Ro- no, Rorschach was supposed to be like his vision was making fun of Steve G- Ditko, who was an objectivist. So he was trying. Right, right. He was trying to show how libertarianism leads to fascism. That's literally what he was intending to show <laughs> with with the character. If I'm thinking, yeah. it's Alan Moore, right? Am I going to be owned yes. on this? Yeah, okay. Uh, it's Alan Moore. <laughs> it, it's funny. I was um, I was like looking for videos before we started recording to like remember what uh, his voice sounds like, so I could do that joke. And I lo- mm-hmm. I made the mistake of looking at the comments. For the video, because everyone was talking about how Rorschach is like really cool and heroic and good and has good morals and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yes, that was the point of that character. <laughs> All right, listen to that. Okay, this, but uh, not to go back to crime, but this fucking thing about altruism—it's just—it's so absurd. This is an incredibly sinister set of paragraph pages. Uh-huh. Um. Perhaps you could randomly select a group of states and command each of them to release 10,000 prisoners. 
You could look at the different group of states, live lock up 10,000 people. Wait a few years and measure right these crimes. Then a, 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 you have a randomized experiment. It says, um, uh, da, 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 happily, the ACE, American Civil Liberties Union was good enough to create ju to just such an experiment. In recent decades, the ACLU has filed lawsuits against dozens of states to protest overcrowded prisons. Uh, grant, key line here, granted, the choice of states is hardly random because more, more punitive states lock up more people and therefore already have higher rates of crime also on top of their whatever. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the, the ACLU sues where presented whatever. Uh, the ACLU wins virtually all of these cases. False. Flat, just false. I mean, that's just, to even write that is false. I worked at a fucking prisoner's firm and I've worked at the ACLU. This is not, it's, I mean, interned. Okay, I'm not going to talk too big about myself. But, <laughs> but, uh, all right, all right, all right. But fuck it. That's such, oh, okay. Um, then he says, uh, the prison population falls by 15%. What do those freed prisons do? A whole lot of crime. In the three years after the ACLU wins a case, violent crime rises by 10% and property by crime, uh, by 5% of the affected states. Now, what? First of all, he's already admitted it's not random. Secondly, the dates of this is not given and nor are the context of this. Um, Look, and he says, the ratio of arrests per crime fell, fell dramatically during the 1960s for both property and violent crime. But, of course, we're also less likely to lock up people. A criminal could expect to spend an astonishing 60% less time behind bars than they would have for the same crime committed a decade earlier. Um, first of all, the reason, the big reason driving that was uh, civil rights movement, because before, cops would just literally just pick up any person of color they saw and then put them in jail for the offense and clear and clearance rates fell. People are like, Oh, clearance rates fell from uh, 90% from river to 50%. And then you look at it and it's like, Oh, cause they started, they couldn't frame people anymore. Like literally that's true. <laughs> and then, um, says so between 60 and 80. Yeah. He talks about the rise in youth, um, and therefore search of crime. But, so I guess it's not because of legalized abortion anymore. Oh like, no, it's on top. Of, <laughs> no, that no, no, that's what saved it later. But then he says, <laughs> but even such a radical demographic shift can only account for ten percent of the increase in crime. As we talked about, this crime rate, crime change happened in every single post World War II industrial company country, and all of right. them had the same population increase. So what he's doing is he's selectively sampling the wrong kind of data and not using the right comparisons. It's an incredibly sly form of. Uh, p hacking or whatever basically <clears throat> um it's not actually it's not that but it's 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 a, a, a purposeful omission um and he says it's like because we weren't imprisoning enough people and yes of tv or something he says a host of other things including the oh yes including the great migration of african americans from the rural south to northern cities and the return of vietnam vets by the war first of all i st the 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 I really wish I had the citation for this ACLU thing because I know it's horseshit. I mean, <laughs> I know it's horseshit because you, I, I, I mean, I, I actually, the last time, you know, I sent you these articles where they talk about testing Levitt's hypotheses and reviewing them. And literally even these other kind of semi kind of conservative economists are saying, no, he's totally wrong on all of this crime stuff. It's just, <laughs> it's just like, they, in the, I showed you the deterrence paper uh, where they literally yep. they test all these hypotheses. And they found that literally only one form of policing had any effect and the rest didn't. <laughs> it was just like, uh, um, so yeah, so he has the, uh, the, uh, 
TV variable thing. Um, yeah, talking about property crime. You can get the children. Wait, uh, because let's see. Oh, here we go. For every extra year a young person was exposed to TV in his first 15 years, we see a 14% increase in the number of property crime arrests. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's okay. probably because like they were at home without parents there because the exactly. parents were working or something. you know. But also, also, as Robert Putnam in the book Bowling Alone shows, television, among other forms of mass media and cultural changes, is both correlated but also he, he argues at least somewhat causally responsible for the this, this, the decline in social ties, social capital, and participa participation in organizations on average over time for the average person. Those three variables predict uh, fucking like male suicide and male murder rates, men's murder rates. Like that's really it. Like that's – and so at the same time as this is happening – you have this massive boom in uh, youth. You have the rise of the highway system. You have the rise of the suburbs. You have white flight, and you have the decline of social ties and social capital, mm. all co-occurring at the same time. Uh, mm. As uh, I mean, there's a bunch of other things too, as well as sort of social unrest because of uh, basically civil rights movement showing everything to be sort of making it plain to everybody's faces. Every, you know what I mean? Because everybody already was aware. But of uh, like whatever. So you have this and belief, faith in the justice of the law is also a predictor of crime. So he avoids all these other things like economic dislocation. Uh, he just jumps over the migration thing. He jumps over the discrimination thing. He jumps over the, the, the um, uh, belief in legitimacy of the law. He jumps over the issues of the social ties and social capital. He jumps over... Um, changes in industrial structure and and the car system and all this other stuff like right like the introduction of highways is correlated with the rise of serial killings in like basically every place that it occurred uh-huh uh, there's a book let me find it uh this is this book is less educational about crime than the tv show that i'm watching right now mind hunters it opens oh, yeah. up like, talking about <laughs> how like state violence and like deprivation causes people to become like criminals mm. is that the is that the netflix one or the ted kaczynski one it's the netflix one about um the btk uh yeah yeah it's about like uh, the fbi stuff. unit that yeah. created like the idea of serial killers and stuff yeah i watched the first season of that um What's your take I, I, haven't, I haven't watched the second yet i tried to but yeah. i just couldn't you couldn't <laughs> <laughs> um it is incredibly entertaining, but it is not. Oh, yeah, here we go. Here's the book. It's called Killer on the Road, Violence in the American Interstate. And it's true. It's like in um, – Yeah, I remember you posting something about this. It's really interesting because in, in like Mexico and Russia and too – and by the way, obviously, we all know it's – the introduction of highways is correlated with a ton of other variables that are also criminogenic. So uh, right. no, one is, no one is solely attributing it to that. But it does actually have a causal effect because, for example <clears> – <throat> One of like, the main places. Weren't highways like used to divide black black neighborhoods um, in like that, the post civil rights what, era? What had happened with that was that it was sort of to the effect of like there were power struggles of where the highway should go, and then the black community organizations would always lose or have no voice whatsoever. So it was uh, easiest for them to uh, just you know th that there was the, in Robert Moses. It says, I mean, sorry, uh, the author of the book Power Broker says Robert Moses did it on purpose. But a later book, uh, study by, I forget who it was, 
shows that it wasn't the case, but it definitely was true that his policies were racist and his building was racist. But like with the truck stop thing though, it's like one of the main things you start to see are murders and abduction of people and especially sex workers at truck stops. Cause that if you're a serial killer, you, you're just driving from out of town, you kill someone horribly, you then just leave and you're never going to get caught because it's a group of people society has decided are expendable in the first place. And then you're, and you're, you're mobile. Uh, you, they have no idea where you're coming from or where you're going. Uh, they didn't have synthesized databases of, you know, DNA or whatever. So in Mexico and in, in, in Russia, or whatever, these mass highways are in fact, both because of their correlation things and because of their causal effects associated with these rises. Anyway. Yeah. So uh, is there like no such thing as serial killers in countries where they don't have like highway systems like that? Oh, no, 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 no. This is just a very, referring to a very kind of like specific, like, uh, like, uh, the the there there's probably there's serial murders of pretty much in probably every urbanized society. Okay. But otherwise, if you're like in the small like rural town in the middle of nowhere, I mean, if you wanted to become a killer, you just like join the army or whatever. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, but serial murder requires because you have to just have to have many victims, right? So yeah. you have to be able to not get caught. You have to have a large supply of victims. You have to be able to move around quickly. Um, and so that requires urbanization, but True. Yeah. this, this, this specific kind of like, like, I don't know how to explain it. It's, just, it's like, as I said, it was correlated with all these other rises too, but it, mm -hmm. it just enabled things to happen in a certain way. So the next chapter is, uh, the fix is in and it's cheap and simple. And he is talking of course about communism, uh, which <laughs> is the fix and it's, uh, cheap and simple. Um, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so he starts talking about uh, Ignaz Semmelweis uh, discovering that doctors washing their hands reduces child mortality. Uh, wait, sorry, wait, I, sorry, sorry. One last thing I want to just say about from the crime chapter. Oh, sure. Is he brings up the Milgram experiment and the huh. Zimbardo experiments um, and, you know, and how they got basically people to do whatever they wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, that those two studies i mean and and by the way they have been replicated under a lot of conditions to the best of our ability um i can i can put a link to zimbardo's little popular press book on it but uh they uh like this undercuts so much of what he's saying here because <clears throat> the central thrust of these um things of these studies is that basically there isn't a conscious incentive thing here operating in, in terms of like, you know, whatever it is, the perceived legitimacy of the authority and yeah. not whatever. And th that basically the point was, is that situational influences and um, outside of our influence, outside of our consciousness, determine vastly more of our behavior than anything approximating c conscious will. And it do, they do so in ways that do not follow the per se, uh, abstracts incentive structure that uh he's talking about but instead they have they have frame dependent incentive structure so so it's like uh you can induce people to either care about money or care about power or whatever and they'll but it's beyond the control of the people themselves so it undercuts the sort of rational actor and abstract incentives that he needs for his thesis so it's another he just keeps citing these people who if you understand their work they literally undercut his main points 
Yeah, the Milgram experiment was one of those things that made me like push me towards anarchism. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's great. It's a very important study, and it's been replicated yeah. a ton of times under across different cultures, across different situations, across different designs. I mean, it's, it's pretty robust. <laughs> People on the internet will say, "Oh, sociology has a so psychology has a replication problem." And the older that, or what is the recent one? They tried to say Zimbardo is bad because he told some he he like what he did some shit where he basically. He told some of the prisoners that to get mean or whatever, and they say this disproves it, even though the whole point of it was that people were responding to authority. So it's just like okay, yeah. but anyway, <laughs> anyway. So I just want I just wanted to get that out there is that he like, it's another example of him citing very good work that contradicts his main point and then moving on from it. Um, let's see. So oh, the first the first paragraph of the fixes in the cheap and it's cheap and simple on just about any dimension you think of. Warfare, crime, income, education, transportation, worker safety, health. The 21st century is far more uh, hospitable to the average human than any other, any oh, earlier Stephen time. Shit. <laughs> yep. And mm. but and whatever we know that is false. I, I can't stress this enough. Uh, Gregory Clark in uh, Farewell to Alms, I think it is the book. I have to check. Talks about how in many parts of the global South, people are worse off even than they were a hundred years ago. Let alone during. Uh, uh, pre whatever, and as a matter of fact, he chooses the one statistic that he can win with. And I don't dispute this about childbirth. Mm. Infant more infant mortality is substantially higher among um, uh, nomadic, nomadic foragers and pastoralists and stuff. But on uh, nutrition, hours expended, safety, uh, health, that it, maybe not education and transportation, fine. Uh, but safety and worker safety and war and uh, and crime and violence and whatever and nutrition and uh, livelihood and freedom and leisure and equality and gender equality and mobility and da 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 and by the way I don't mean all of them I'm saying like the median and mean is higher than it was it is the higher or the same as the best of the 21st and 20th centuries you know what I'm saying so anyway and so I, I just hate this, this nonsense Again, there's wide variation in all societies, so there were some obviously incredibly violent uh, people, you know. But so, but that's not the point, anyway. Mm-hmm. And this whole thing uh, about about um, about maternal death and infant mortality is just that uh, <laughs> the the solutions to that come from low cost like in uh, initiatives. That basically have nothing to do with the market at all. You can implement them uh, anywhere, as in, as shown clearly in the socialist countries, among other places. But <laughs> they literally just have to be like, "Hey, doctors, wash your fucking hands before you <laughs> deliver a child." And then, yeah. oh my god, look at that—that's fall fifty percent or whatever. You know, it's, it's, like, <laughs> it's like, "Wow, I never knew that." You know, it's just, uh, uh, so after that, he. Uh, starts talking about the the law of unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he says governments, for instance, often enact legislation meant to protect their most vulnerable charges, but that instead ends up hurting them. Which, like, as soon as I read this, I was like, oh boy, he's about to say affirmative action is bad. <laughs> yep. But even by the way, that principle, law of unintended consequences, moral hazard, and that um, paternalistic policies often, often, actually, usually do hurt the people they intend to protect. That's true, but it's true f- for the exact opposite reasons he says it is, and for the right. exact opposite things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
That's um, all I mean. Yeah. So he talks about like uh, the Endangered Species Act, which uh, he says uh, landowners rush to cut down trees to make it less attractive to da- endangered species. Which means, of course, the problem is the rule against causing mass extinction and not, like, yeah. the profit motive. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, let's see. He says some governments have based their trash pickup fees on volume to reduce the amount of trash that gets produced. And instead, people just pack their bags as full as possible or throw it in the woods. Uh, like, wow, damn, it's almost like dealing with waste should be a social function and not something we let individuals pay for and decide whether to do or not. <laughs> Well, I think, I think, I mean, actually, I probably, if we're going to have to have, if we're going to be in this, like, urban capitalist shithole, charging, assessing people for their waste is not a bad idea, but mm. it, is, it is good, it is going to create perverse incentives. I mean, obviously, Absolutely. there's no way, there's no, there's very little way around that except for, like, uh, uh, there are, there, there are other, th- like, on the, on the supply side, you could basically make it so that the producers of these things are liable for them, yes. them being wasted or, um, thrown out or recycled, and so they would have to, you know, I don't. The Economist always, even the Economist magazine, it thinks it's like they're just like, uh, yeah, they just you just could put cheap RFID chips in trash bags, and then, uh, and then charge rich people for throwing out their absurd shit. Literally, even the even the Economist, <laughs> even the Economist magazine says that shit. So it's just like what? <laughs> anyway, yeah, uh, regulations on businesses never work. Uh, so we need to regulate. Uh, you know, regular people instead. That's right. Like, yeah, <laughs> the it's, favorite thing. This I love um, it. The Endangered Species Act is actually endangering rather than protecting species. Well, first of all, it is. That's first of all. That's because it's it's selective about which species it protects, mm-hmm. and which species it protects is a result of a coalition of interests fighting against each other. So it's oh. like if the spotted owl is in danger or whatever, but I think they actually did didn't end up protecting that, but like whatever, but the logging industry is like, ah, oh, what is coalition is bigger than the environmentalist coalition. And then it's going to, they're going to get excluded. And, uh, like it's also, there's this conservationism of American, uh, environmentalism and conservationism is just kind of stupid. It doesn't make sense because, it's about selectively protecting pristine nature, and that's yeah. entirely arbitrary. Stopping evolution. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right, <laughs> and so and invasive species and all that kind of thing. Um, right. But which, by the way, it's not really a scientific term. But anyway, like we, uh, we only want to stop the mass killing of species that are already about to die. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, right. Right. And then, so it's just uh, like with the Endangered Species Act. Uh, they they could just they, they, even a board court is on thing they could just divest it of the private like uh, oh my god I'm losing my words here they could have instituted it such that like uh, in effect the property owner is a conservator of their property but the property is still commonly owned by all and you don't even need full socialization to do that this there's, this is actually an idea that's been proposed and. Um, environmental law. It's a liberal idea. I mean, but but it basically it would prevent this kind of thing. But anyway, uh, so he he continues. Uh, he starts fawning over the agricultural revolution as the end of famines, uh, which of course was uh, simply a few minor innovations. Uh, that's all that caused it. So he says a variety of innovations, none particularly complex. They included higher yielding crops, better tools, and a more efficient use of capital changed farming and subsequently the face of the earth. This is, we talked about this like a few episodes ago. 
this is like a mind-bendingly bad explanation of the agricultural revolution, which was mainly because, like, he even mentions ammonium nitrate and calls it the silver single bullet, but then doesn't talk about where it came from or anything about it, which is like, it came from stealing it from the colonized peoples in the fucking new world. And, yeah. and, and off, but also, I mean, the, 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 the whole thing about that is so overstated and misunderstood. But I, just before that, you, I wanted to say, have you noticed this thing where he talks about the Bible and the Jubilee, the dead Jubilee, and he dismisses it? So all debts have to be rec- deleted every seven Oh, yeah, years. we just can't do that, and, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, and so he says, um, in the history of uh, few match the one, Ignaz Semmelweis's medical – but ha- medical doctor oh, – wait, wait, sorry. Um, no, no, no. On, you, they would loan and then become tighter on years five and six. Where does is that Semmelweis the statistics for that? Because otherwise, I'm going to need to know how he knows about the fucking economic practices of a biblical archaeological thing that we don't even know existed if it existed or not. I mean, it's what? What? It's just like what? Oh my god! He just said it there. He just asserted this. I mean, if if there's well, you see, he plugged it into an equilibrium model and found it doesn't work. Okay. And so, by the way, and by the way, if you want to do this, by the way, uh, actually, it's pretty easy. And economists have all recognized this. You randomize the debt forgiveness year. That's it's so simple. You make it within (laughs) within a certain. You make it within a certain margin, so that there might be some kind of cheating. But and then it basically it's like okay, it's every seven. It's in these seven years. It has. It can be seven year interval on average, but what the average the the, the horizon chosen for that is not publicly known. And then uh, you just have it randomly choose days. So some years it'll come twice in a row, and then sometimes it might take fourteen or whatever. But if you did that, there you could not cheat the thing. I think you should do the opposite. You should just have a debt jubilee every like thirty minutes. <laughs> right. Well, no, you should abolish debt. But I'm talking about if we're, if we're going to talk about incentive compatible capitalism, yeah. whatever you want to do it. The problem is he's he says all these things, but other uh, other sociopathic economists have figured solutions out to this within these orders. You know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yes. Um, now, now to the bullshit about agriculture. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was done with that that bit uh since we we covered it so thoroughly on another episode um if you're interested oh, no. in hearing that check it out it's uh called uh we're we're real nerds about bird turds or something like that okay uh, well yeah but yeah but, but uh but, we so just, he, he, but the, just the point like to point out though that just like all of this stuff is nonsense the green revolution did not raise agricultural productivity it raised agricultural level very yeah. important distinction uh as we're talking about it's colonial third it degrades the soil uh, fourth, it is the single biggest uh, cause of an, a planetary boundary violation there is. I posted a paper where it's like, yeah, out of nine planetary boundaries, uh, over in land use and agriculture drives seven or eight of them. But and then, uh, <laughs> and, then uh, and as um, Vlakov Smil says, and I literally have him right fucking next to me, uh, his book, uh, this is just one beautiful little talk about economic incentives. This is just one thing I want to read let's see since the early 1970s energy ratios have been used to illustrate the superiority of traditional farming and the low return energies of modern agriculture um uh, uh right but basically it says that uh in modern farming, the denominator is composed primarily of non-renewable fossil fuel inputs needed to power field machinery and make machines. 
labor impulse are negli negligible. If ratios were calculated as merely quotients of edible energy to output, would look modern would look superior. But if the cost of producing a cop included all converted fossil fuels and energy into the common denominator, i.e. if you calculated them similarly, then the energy returns of modern agriculture would be substantially below traditional returns. Such right. a calculation is possible because of the physical equivalence of energies. Both food and fuels can be expressed in identical units. Anyway, so he says, he says so some people, he says, so first, he basically he's saying, um, superior, he says, uh, energy ratios have been used to illustrate the superiority of traditional farming and low energy returns. Uh, but then it says, uh, this can be misleading. However, if you actually do use the complete energy analysis, modern agriculture, I mean, uh, traditional agriculture is vastly more energy, higher returning than uh, the uh, modern. Anyway, it's just this book, uh, Energy and Civilization and History by Vaclav Smil. Uh, I basically think anybody who's interested in these ecological issues and transition should have to read this because unlike these other dipshit economists, he actually looks at these these long he goes he basically does huge historical deep, deep historical analysis of energy and its conversion and its mobilization in labor and food and consumption and waste and the system based around it and the transitions and uh, it see it's interesting because like unlike other sorts of things uh energy is in a sense a homogenous uh uh factor input in as much as it, it, it can be converted either into whatever denominator you want, like uh, yeah. power, energy released, food, labor equivalent, so on, um, and making these systemic comparisons really possible. And, you know, I don't know, as long as you distinguish between the stocks and the flows of energy, you know, sunlight flowing down versus uh, sunlight being stocked up in the form of fossil fuels, like, I don't, yeah, it's just a great book. Anyway, I just, and economists are stupid, but. <laughs> uh, so speaking of economists being stupid, he then uh, talks about whale oil and how it nearly drove whales to extinction. Mm -hmm. But again, no reflection on how this clearly shows that business is awful and causes untold destruction in the pursuit of personal enrichment. <laughs> And, of course, he says that crude oil, which replaced whale oil, was the original Endangered Species Act with, like, no hint of irony to it. I know. It's, yeah, that's, like, like <laughs> this, I, this, this. Especially because he talks about climate change later in the book. <laughs> like, what the fuck, man? He's just, like, a complete dog brain. Like, his, yeah. he thinks in, like, one-minute intervals. Uh, he can't no... think about anything before or after it. What he, because he, he takes everything as an inevitability and then sees things that occur as having been inevitable too to replace them. That's sort of how he thinks. So, so it's like the Nate Silver of economics. <laughs> Nate Silver is smarter than this. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Indisputably. Even Nate, even, Nate, even Nate Silver, I've read some of his things, will admit that every once in a while he'll be like, he'll have to admit that the statistics prove that some sort of one of these aspects of like modernity or technocracy are full of shit. So every once in a while he'll admit that. And, and he, I don't think Nate Silver even has this uh, abstract and useless conception of incentives. So, <laughs> so if you're doing worse than uh, the fucking baseball, the baseball Donald Trump is gonna lose guy, then uh, <laughs> uh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, also uh, Buck of Smil does talk about the transition with the uh, whale oil and the uh, other stuff too. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I, I have actually quite a few books on that one. It's a really oh. oh by the way, 
the other point, Andreas Malm, wonderful book, Fossil Capital. Every single fucking person in the world should read it, or every leftist anyway. Um, and it talks about how the ERE, energy return on energy invested, as well as like the economic cost of uh, introduction of petroleum fuels and those kinds of things, was not actually better than the equivalents that they could get from air and water at the time, because hmm. water and air and water power and other sorts of similar powers, to the extent they could capture wind through windmill and sun through whatever else, although that was much harder, um, water was still frequent and abundant. So he shows how the water mills they were more efficient than the the, the, the than the fossil than the yeah they didn't steam, get replaced steam. until like 1980 or something. Uh, well, it took it took. Well, they were still economically profitable for a long time because that's marginal. Yeah. But but it took a hundred years of basically subsidized um, fossil fuel use and using it at a loss by business owners to that for it to finally become more efficient. And so the thing about this is absurd because the notion is like you know and, and efficiency being like cost efficiency, right? Cost efficiency and energy efficiency. So E R O E R O E I and uh, um. Yeah, but uh, uh, that's basically, uh, basically for, for anyone it, who doesn't know, that's energy returned on energy invested. It's like a measure of how much energy you have to put in to get energy out of something else. The problem is the thing is is that like capitalists taking a loss. I mean, the state contributed, but but capitalists taking a loss collectively goes even especially if they're not cartelized they're sort of competing against each other. That goes yeah. against basically any all these economic theories because they. Yeah. What they cared about, except for, by the way, Nitzit and Bicklers, which is where I was going to actually go next, <laughs> just to point this out, but which is that because they fossil fuels were more advantageous because it gave them not more money but more control because yeah. now they could put factories wherever they wanted, whereas water mills had to be next to water, and because land rights still, despite enclosure, had more had at least somewhat favored the, the peasants' tenancy and stuff. So. The workers who lived in the area of water mills, A, had bargaining power because it's more costly to move the factory, and B, had better access to the proceeds and the rights. With the introduction of fossil fuels, now the factory owners could put them wherever they want and just could just destroy any uh, labor power. And, by the way, the same thing is true with this book called um, – so there's two. There's two. One is called Carbon Democracy and one's called Energy and Empire. Um, actually, there's two books called Energy and Empire. But uh, anyway – oh, wait – Coal and empire, well, whatever, and uh, it shows that same thing happened with coal. That the U.S. government and British governments they subsidized these massive postal and naval shipping techniques and building at a loss for a substantial portion of time because even though it cost uh, more, it, it it enabled all these other things, and coal especially gave the British army naval mobility and supremacy. So. Yeah. That's where that's in, helped initiate or was part and parcel of this mad late uh, 1800s imperialist rush for resource spots where they could like basically refuel their ships with coal. It's, I mean, it's just like literally, you know, so yeah. Anyway, I, I, rem I think I remember even like in uh, the conquest of bread, Kropotkin talks about how uh, postal systems came like from the military. Um. Oh, oh, that might be true because also and also telegraphy, you know, but um, like where you like uh, you would have uh, different oh, people. Telegraphy? 
Yeah, telegraphy for people, but people would be on different towers, and you shine a light, and it would communicate across oh, vast okay. distances. Uh-huh. And like, like in Mulan, where they light the fire, and the whole wall goes yeah. up. And that it was actually incredibly efficient, but um, yeah, and over long distances, like literally, they could communicate. The French army could communicate stuff like across the country, like relatively quickly. But um, uh, yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll send some of the links to these stuff because these resources, I, I love them because they just they they basically destroy. Well, I don't know both the vulgar neoclassical and the vulgar Marxian analysis. Not the more sophisticated ones. Like Malm himself is a Marxist, so it's not like. It's not like a rejection of it, but yeah, but yeah. but this but it does disprove this idea that like a technology drives society as opposed to it being a dialectic, and b that like profit rather than control is the main motivator. You know, so I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Uh, so the next part of this chapter gets into something that like uh, has become kind of a pet peeve of mine, which is like car safety. Yeah, he talks about how cars are like so much safer the, than they were in 1950 when they also killed 40,000 people every year. Uh, thanks to uh, the seatbelt uh, made in cars by the famous warplane man, uh, driving in the United States isn't much more dangerous than sitting on your couch. Uh, so, I mean, I would be interested to hear how 40,000 people die every year from sitting on their couch. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Oh I, well, no, no. The logic is that by okay, I I know exactly. I know how they were gonna just how he can justify that if he wants to. It's absurd, but he can do it. Is it uh, yeah, sedentary, sitting on your couch? Being sedentary. The, yes, it's the foregone cost of of, of, of exercise and activity, and yeah. that you could have been making money, and you could have been and you could have been doing stuff, but instead you're wasting your time and eating and relaxing. So it takes time. Off <laughs> right, 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 right. It's the that, existence of couches and the yeah, use right. of couches that kills you. <laughs> and, not that. and then I'm, and, Oh, and I'm sure like a, no, a non-trivial portion of perhaps like elderly people fall off their couches or something like fine. Like we can grant that, but like that. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's an absurd comparison. Yeah. Um, and then he, uh, let's see. Sorry. Um, Wait, which, so which chapter is the car thing in? It's uh, the fix is in, and it's cheap and simple. He, oh, it's still there. He's talking about how like seat belts made cars really safe, uh, like much safer, and it's just like a piece of cloth, so it's really cheap, and like it was great because, you know, it's this cheap and simple fix that uh, lowered the death rates of cars. But like, you know, of course, questioning whether cars are a good idea in the first place not not part of this book at all. There's this really funny debate you can see on YouTube where um, this kid, well, Milton Friedman is being kid, questions, Q&A, and this kid stands up and he talks like a total dunce and he's like, oh, recently it was announced that GE, uh, at the expense of the consumer, insulted a sub-faulty radiator exhausting that has led to subsequent deaths on the road and da-da-da. And not by virtue of him being right, but by this kid being very dopey and, uh, 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 but because yeah, this kid, so Milton Friedman is just like, uh, well, do you, so you think that life has an infinite value? What if the investments in the cost savings from the tailpipe, whatever, were used to make life-saving medicines? You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's just, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but, but there's this. But what's funny is you, you can only have uh, trains or doctors. You can't have both. <laughs> right. Exactly. But, but I forget who it is, but the, the kid who asked him my question, unironically 
grew up and be, and it turns out I forget which one it was, but it was one of these pundits like Michael Horowitz or uh, one of those NY Times conservative guys. I, for, yeah. I forget I forget who it is, but there's this. It literally he's the kid, the hippie kid. Is a famous conservative pundit now. I'll find it, but yeah. Uh, so one really fucking crazy part in this chapter, uh, like Levitt, I guess had hadn't said anything really racist in like twenty pages. So he says he needed in, like, he was like in a parenthesis it, with, the, with the guy with the swollen vein, where it's like when you yeah, have right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, he says parenthetically in this chapter. You might argue that for a 40-year-old safety device that only 20% of its users can install correctly may not be a great safety device to begin with. He's, uh, oh, compared with car seats. Sorry. Oh, to begin with, yeah. Compared with car seats, the condoms worn by Indian men seem practically infallible. Uh, what? What? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> what? God damn it. Love it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, is that, is that the condom size thing? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Jesus yeah. Christ! I think I think I think in the illustration section in the middle of the book, there's like a picture of it. Well, I did not see that. <laughs> I don't. I didn't see an illustration section in the one that I had. How 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 do in, Indian men measure up with a picture? Yep, I'll send it to you. <laughs> God, <laughs> you should post this on, on the thing. <laughs> like this is this is illustrative of the whole book. Like the rest of the chapter, he does like a parallel comparison of like uh, seat belts versus car seats, because he's trying to prove that like this simple fix is better for whatever fucking reason. Um, so he does Which like might be true, but it's irrelevant to his point. Yeah. Uh, so he he tries to go to like crash test facilities and have them uh, test like using a seatbelt on a child instead of a car seat, and like all of them turn him down except for one who would only do it secretly. Because they might lose business from car companies. And, like, again, this guy thinks that capitalism is fine and no analysis of this, you know? Well, and that's um, like, and talk, and talk about incentive incompatibility. If the car companies have to hire their own regulators, that's what they're going to do, like with the fucking yeah. banks and the insurance bundling uh, uh, during the 2007 financial crisis. <laughs> Because because the banks pay the people who certify and regulate them, and if they yep. say the wrong thing, then they don't get their business. It's yep. so so. It's that's that's an incentive for you, fucking Stephen Levitt. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you don't put man. the fox in charge of the hen house, as it's as it is said. Right. Exactly. Uh, do you so <laughs> I, was, I was really mad reading this when I was writing these notes. So I I went and looked up like uh, statistics about train deaths. So in the EU, which has about twice the population of the U.S., uh, they only have a thousand fatalities a year from trains, and seventy percent of those are suicides. So it's like an extremely safe form of transportation. To be fair, the comparison you have to make is by volume, though. But absolutely, the volume is higher. So well, even in the U.S., uh, for for trains. Uh, 0.43 fatalities per billion passenger miles compared with cars, which are 7.28 fa fatalities per billion passenger miles. So you're 17 times a, more likely to die yeah, in a car yeah, yeah, than almost, on a train. Yeah, almost 20 times. That's absurd. Mm -hmm. I mean, and also like, I bet you, but that, is, that doesn't even like, because uh, that doesn't even account for the secondary or indirect uh, causes as well. 
So like, um, like, like, so the accidents, presumably both of these include people who are hit by cars and hit by trains and then those who are on them as well. Uh-huh. Right. Is that how the fatalities per billion miles is traveled is calculated? I don't know, but, uh, that, uh, that I think it's all just fatalities involved with train in general. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, they're okay. kind of suicides. So, um, okay. And so then, I mean, let's see. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Um, okay. It's cars are safer than you have it than sitting on the couch, by the way. All right. Here's a great example. Uh, however, cars cause and enable as much sedentary whatever as the sitting on the couch, right? Whereas the trains don't necessarily do so. So, in fact, you can attribute the sitting on the couch deaths to cars and then trains win doubly. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you see what I'm saying? The indirect effects of both of them are ab- absurd. And, like, cars pollute and destroy the envi- uh, environment and breathable air at a much higher rate. Um, and uh, roads destroy ecosystems. Road, road mileage is our heat traps. Um, and, 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 by the way, traffic hours lost due to congestion stuff. That also has a foregone cost in life because... For example, ambulances or um, lost hours worked or uh, the stress from driving or – I mean there's so many uh, other losses in health, uh, like physical, mental health, time, congestion, pollution, yeah, like the, damage. The suburb – like the suburb uh, form of like urban planning, which is only possible because of cars – like causes people to become more obese and have worse health problems because they drive everywhere and don't exercise. And it also increases car fatalities because people drive faster on those kind of roads than they do in the city. So they're like more likely to kill pedestrians. And they also pay less in tolls and parking costs. So there's induced demand as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and the sprawl leads to higher costs for the city. It makes it takes longer time for emergency services to get to a place. Uh, this is all proven, by the way. I mean, it's just like whatever. Uh, there's a direct uh, correlation between density and CO2 emissions, uh, eyes on the street, uh, all this other stuff. Uh, and there's also the way that the suburbs in this car culture are impoverishing in a key way. And, I mean, there's just so many talking about foregone costs from – pollution to whatever it's just absurd um so here is like the the real crooks of this chapter and like one of the only uh discussions of the economy really (laughs) in many pages uh he says (laughs) alas governments aren't famous for cheap or simple solutions they tend to prefer the costly and cumbersome route note that none of the earlier examples in this chapter were the brainchild of a government official except uh, one of the guys that made uh, warplanes or whatever. Uh, even the polio vaccine was primarily developed by a private group, the National Foundation for Infant Paralysis. President Roosevelt personally provided the seed money. It's interesting that even the even a sitting president chose the private sector for such a task, and the oh foundation then raised the money and conducted the trials. So he says, <laughs> cheap and simple governments aren't famous for cheap and simple solutions like the private sector are. Is like, like. 
cheap and simple solutions like each person having their own personal vehicle that they then have to drive around themselves and it kills people <laughs> yeah, 40,000 right, right. times a year. Wait, and, and he says, nor was it the government that puts put seatbelts in cars. He just fucking said that no one used them until the government forced them to. What the fuck? Yeah, that's absolutely true. They did not do ah! so. Yeah. And, 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 and consumer lawsuits driven by, you know, Ralph Nader, really, actually, yeah. uh, of all people, which is really funny. But, but uh, oh uh, he's surprisingly interesting in that way. But uh, also, and uh, just like the polio vaccine is such a funny example, too, because it was just like, uh, I mean, they put it into the public domain afterwards. Uh, and among other things, what he neglects to mention is, oh, wait, who provides, um, 90% of, uh, uh, healthcare R and D funding, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, um, between like, uh, yeah, yeah. Just basically the private places do not fund R and D ever. Right. And they never have, it took the government for doing it and passing it off to them. It's a giant, you know, scam basically. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's try and finish yeah. out uh, with the last chapter. By the way, and that's like not a defense of the state either. Yeah. It's just like a silly. It's just such an absurdly. Right. I don't know. Uh, so the last chapter is the one that I think everyone probably remembers, and it is it's so much worse than you thought. <laughs> it's uh, the one about climate change. <laughs> so he starts the chapter by talking about global cooling and how that should cast doubt yeah, on the course. veracity of claims of global warming. Uh, but even though even though there was this one article about it in Time magazine in uh, nineteen seventy two <laughs> and then no one ever talked about it again. Yeah. That was the extent and, of it. And everyone who right. thinks and global now, warming is real worships Al Gore and you know uh one, one Oh yeah, I love us. conservatives love uh, that. They're like they're like, <laughs> they're like oh, and how about Albert Gore's private plane? I don't give a shit. Throw him in the gallows too, man. I don't fucking yeah, right. <laughs> So I'm just gonna go through some of the highlights of just like really stupid shit he says here. Uh so First up, you could also switch from eating beef to eating kangaroo because kangaroo farts, as fate would have it, doesn't contain methane. <laughs> awesome, dude. Um, let's see. If we were certain that warming would impose large and defined costs, the economics of the problem would come down to a simple cost-benefit analysis. Do the future benefits from cutting emissions outweigh the costs of doing so? Or are we better off waiting to cut emissions later? Or even, perhaps, polluting at will and just learning to live in a hotter world? Oh my fucking god. Oh yeah, man. Fuck off. <laughs> I will fucking personally kill you. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, oh, this one's great. It is understandable, therefore, that the movement to stop global warming has taken on the feel of a religion. The core belief is that humankind inherited a pristine Eden has sinned greatly by polluting it and must now suffer lest we all perish in a fiery apocalypse. James Lovelock, who might be considered a high priest of this religion, writes in a confessional... Yeah, another li- fucking sort that, that said one thing one time in 1975 <laughs> yeah, right. that they... Right. <laughs> writes in a confessional language that would feel at home in any liturgy. We misused energy and overpopulated the earth. It is much too late for sustainable development. What we need is a sustainable retreat. Well, how does that... <laughs> How's that religious language? Wait, and, and also, doesn't Levitt at some point uh, advocate population control? I'm sure yeah. he does. So, <laughs> let's, don't, 
That's what they they say like the left the left wing Malthusian uh, degrowth whatever in the UN right. they want population control oh, and yes, another thing we're yeah, always we, talking about <laughs> yeah the, yeah we, <laughs> and in other context they'll be like we recently put one trillion dollars into a program to sterilize the entire population yeah. of that and just like and it's like it's, and it's the same people and it's it, yeah. they, they, so I, I didn't finish I this know. quote so he he says a sustainable retreat sounds a bit like wearing a sackcloth. To citizens of the developed world in particular, this would mean consuming less, using less, driving less, and although uh, it's uncouth to say it aloud, learning to live with a gradual depopulation of the earth. This guy is such a fucking, just, just a shill. That's it. That's all. If the modern conservation <laughs> movement has a patron saint, it is surely Al Gore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and bam, and bam, by the way, by the way, listen to the, listen to the slip he just made. Listen uh-huh. to what he did. He switched from environmental movement to uh-huh. conservation yep. movement. Yeah. These aren't the same thing. Right. By the way. Right. And both – that's, that's, that, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not even yeah. – but not even pedantically. They're not the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Conservatives right. support conservation efforts all the time. But yeah. it's like because uh, con- conservation episodes have to do with uh, land rights basically and no. farming and mm-hmm. like um, the maintenance of – resources and stuff and and having pretty backyards you know what i mean whereas the environmental right. movement is not about that yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. uh so we have a we have a very interesting cameo here uh so he's talking about critics of uh the uh the climate hoax and uh so he says any religion meanwhile has its heretics and global warming is no exception Boris Johnson, a classically educated journalist who managed to become mayor of London, has read Lovelock. He calls him a sacerdotal figure and concluded the following. <laughs> Very interesting citation. <laughs> I mean, I, lo- I love so, and it's And you know who that young journalist was? <laughs> and the president, of, uh, uh, the prime minister of the United Kingdom. <laughs> classically educated. Which means classically, like, edu- classically yeah. educated into see, like having the same blabbermouth right wing yeah. brain worms as Donald yeah. Trump, where even when yeah. he's trying to like be witty and like whatever, his like malapropisms and like kitschy form of racism literally just yeah. sounds like he's just like throwing up like <laughs> like uh, after I don't like chunks of beef. He says, "It's just like I, but you know." I just, Oh God! Uh, so here's another <laughs> uh, stupid guy history. Uh, back when the world's biggest cities were choked with horse manure, people didn't switch to the car because it was good for society. They switched because it was in their economic interest to do so. Which oh my God! I mean, I... there's there's like a long history of cars basically being like forced onto society, and that's how they yeah s- how people switch to them. But okay. <laughs> and also, by the way, as though. Um, horse manu- horses were the only other form of transportation yeah, aside right. from uh, at the time. Bruh, LA people didn't get around in horses. They got around in the fucking streetcar, and they did just uh, fine. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, they got a part. They got around with horses in the ranch areas and stuff. But I mean, come on, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's a, they still do. I mean, <laughs> yeah. but um, and now and now who who has? I mean, uh, whatever. The, the options were never horses or cars, right? That's like mm-hmm. such an absurd thing. Mm-hmm. What about bikes? What about walking? Yeah. What about yeah. trains? What about streetcars? What about, you know? Yep. It's just, oh my God. 
No, we should use global warming as a good, actually, because then we can flood all the coastal cities and use a canal system, which is far more efficient <laughs> than, uh, than, uh, than the cars. Uh, but, um, see, there's, there's, uh, there's my inner economist. <laughs> <That's a good laughs> I, I, I actually did see a speculative arch climate architectural proposal where the it was just basically a look like – I forgot who did it, but it was like a team. You know, every team was like architects, ecologists, or whatever, and their thing was like, look, let's just fill the bottom of all buildings in New York City with concrete. Uh, of the first few floors, so they don't deteriorate. Build a canal, canal and drainage system, and call it a day. Oh yeah, because <laughs> he's like, we're clearly, we're the deception is like, we're clearly not gonna beat. We're gonna going to do it. We don't want this to happen, but look, we're gonna have to live somehow. So I might as well, because it's like basically elites would consent to doing that more than they would to uh, stop it. You know what I mean? So, and everybody loves Venice. Who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> brought us great. I mean, what about this great uh, modern culture? You know, what? Uh, but uh, no, it's Italian though. <laughs> uh, so he talks about uh, this guy uh, Mirvold. I can't remember his first name, but I love this quote: Mirvold, who is fifty years old, has been smart for a long time. He is so polymathic <laughs> as to make an everyday polymath tremble with shame. In addition to his scientific yeah. interests, he is an accomplished nature photographer, chef mountain climber, and a collector of rare books, rocket engines, antique instruments, and especially dinosaur bones. So, like, he's a rich guy so, who like, cooks and takes pictures. <laughs> yeah, this is literally the same fucking resume as the average, like, hipster millennial, uh, but, like, with money I'm a nature attached. photographer. It's... I go, I take my dog on a walk, <laughs> and then I take pictures while, I, while I'm out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, I love this, Mirvold. And so, cartons, he... yeah. <laughs> he was Mirvold. He was the former CTO of Microsoft. So, oh, right. And, and but I, that's what he's saying. Nathan Mirvold. Book. He was right, working at Intellectual Ventures, which he cites a bunch of times, which is like the biggest patent troll in the country. Uh huh. But they did some stuff uh -huh. about, about geoengineering. So he's like talking about them fawningly. <laughs> And then listen to this. Listen to this before he says, "There's been some some grumbling that da 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 is a patent troll, accumulating patents so it can extort money." Uh, there's little hard evidence for such claims. Literally, even the everybody, like even the the fucking industries themselves admit it's real because it got so bad that it, it, the patent trolls themselves are being trolled. So it's just like, <laughs> like <laughs> oh my god, like they're objectively not this thing that is a category. <laughs> Right. It's my yeah, favorite, every, my favorite how, argument. This is how, yeah, this is how everybody makes it. Like the, they'll be like, the, "What you just said is analog, an analogical to something someone else said, and this other person is wrong. Therefore, you're uh, wrong." Right? Yeah. People yeah, make yeah. that argument right. all the time, and I think uh -huh. it is one of the most blood curdlingly annoying arguments <laughs> there is. Yep. Because it doesn't even make sense. It's just like, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so before talking yeah. about geoengineering, Levitt goes through just about every climate change denial talking point imaginable. Uh, CO2 levels used to be <laughs> higher. Humans cause only 2% of emissions. Climate models are not good enough to make predictions. More CO2 is good for plants. Global warming actually causes higher CO2 levels and not the other way around. Warming is actually because we're so good at taking care of the environment. Sea level rise is less than the change in tides. Global temperature has actually decreased recently, etc., etc., etc. Like literally, if you go okay, to uh, yeah. what so is first it, of skeptical all, science, that website that has like climate right. change denier arguments, it's just like everything on that website. 
Well, it's, it's, well, um, what is it? So a couple of those things he said were like true, but in- incredibly misleading. Yeah, exactly. So uh-huh. like, uh, like, so climate change causes uh, CO2, but doesn't, it's both. Right. It's a self-propelling system. That's the point. Right. Or humans right. only cause 2% of all emissions. Yeah. yeah, but it's the variance that makes the difference. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. All yeah, exactly. It, all, it's a stock flow thing. And, and if you upset the equilibrium quickly enough, it doesn't matter how object, like how small it is. Mr. Economist it, I mean, it, who thinks equilibrium is go- like governs the economy, like not right. understanding how it's equilibrium works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like it's like, or under and understanding like, uh, well, no, no, because uh, he just assumes everything just does restore to right. equilibrium. Whereas, uh, this is talking about an instance which, by definition, it's occurring too fast for the system to return re- to to equ- equilibrate yeah. to it. So, mm-hmm. so it's like, um, it's like uh, I don't know what what you they do model these things in economics like exogenous shock, as they call it. Yeah. Like, and they have a whole literature on this, right? And it's not necessarily the case. Like, even in the pro market ones, there'll be like, the, I don't know, there'll be like something, they, like a asteroid strikes. Or, no, crop failure is the one, the big one they do. Oh, a mass right. crop failure yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why so we anyway, have futures. Then they, that's the reason. <laughs> exactly. That's why we have insurance markets, uh, futures, globalization, and uh, warehouses. And as long as the markets are complete, then we'll beat the famine. It's just like, well, actually, uh, actually, uh, asshole. If you read, you fucking piece of shit. Uh, if you read Mike Davis's uh, late Victorian Holocaust, they did have all those things, and it caused fucking several million millions of people to die. It's just I have that book on my shelf. I need to read it sometime. It's good. It's a good book. I mean, it's really sad. I'm sure, yeah. That's why I haven't read it yet. <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I'm, I'm already depressed right now. Facing <laughs> yourself. Yeah. Well, see, okay, you know this thing where conservatives will be like, it's the free market. And then once people start doing something in the free market they don't like, they yeah. ban it. So it's yeah. like, uh, oh, yeah. like, so with, uh, like, uh, boy, boy, with Israel BDS, yep. right? Um, mm-hmm. It's like, how can you ban someone from not buying something? Anyway. So in Mike Davis's book, he talks about the government was like, well, no, it's the free market. So then private charity has to take care of it. So then these people organized these mass charity campaigns from England, you know, a few of them, the few, the few aristocrats who didn't want, who didn't just think that they should just kill everybody. The, the <laughs> they, 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 and the government banned it. And they said, no, giving them donations is uh, voluntarily is uh, still disrupting the free market. So you can't do it. <laughs> and then all these people, then all these people were like, okay, so then they didn't have a free market solution. Like let's, um, Let's like create this kind of system where we dump the reef flow from one place to another and all this other stuff. And like, no, uh, that doesn't help the free market. In fact, what if we cartelize all the production? And then then, then it just, so every single time, like they even eked a small gain in the market, the British Mm -hmm. government would, would institute another rule that they said was for the free market because just to fucking torture these people, basically to yeah. kill them. I mean, that's literally to get as much revenues. And then the Queen of England, or what, I forget if it was king or queen, but they said India is uh, taking so much from us right now. Uh, they need to pay their they need to pay their share. Some quote like that. It's like yeah. one of those one of those things that makes you want to become an ML because you just yeah. want to like blood. <laughs> you want to you want to just like destroy these people. But yeah. it's just yeah. I don't know. Like, can I become an ML for like a year, do this thing, and then like come back to being an anarchist? Or is that <laughs> it's like it's, it's like it's, it's like a, a ritual where you go out into the wilderness, uh, you whatever you pay your name, and then you come back and then you get integrated into society. You, you either you either die an ML or live long enough to become an anarchist. 
<laughs> that's, what they, uh, that's what they say. They say, that's what they say in reverse. They yep. say, yep. Yeah, you either uh, become an ML or, or no, other way. You die either an anarchist or live long enough to become an ML. ML. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Die an anarchist or live long enough to be an ML. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what they say. Well, it's, you know, it's like, it's like I like to say, you know, anybody, uh, anybody who is, uh, who's, a, who's not an anarchist when they're 20 has no heart, and anybody who's not an ML when they're like 50 has no brain, right? Isn't that how that saying goes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, yeah. uh, but anybody, anybody who's not an anarchist when they're 20 doesn't have a heart. Anybody, uh, anybody who does, who's not an anarchist when they're sixty, also doesn't have, doesn't have a brain. <laughs> That's my view. Uh, well, well, Yonyukan, once you get a little older and uh, you know you uh, get get your own house and you read on authority, uh, you'll become an ML too. Just wait. <laughs> Literally, just like I, it's so funny. Like, like oh, oh yeah, you're an anarchist, but you uh, steam uh, water. That's a state change. <laughs> Like, <laughs> you read books that's by an author that's authority that's, that's literally what he argues basically you it's say you're against absurd. hierarchy yet you believe in maslow's hierarchy of needs <laughs> yeah right yeah but you climb but you climb stairs but you stack object right like uh, <laughs> as, as uh as actually i got in a, this is an argument that i got into with a um a well-meaning you know liberal friend of mine as as many of us have of course um, went to the same grad school as I did, but apparently did not. Have well, wait, way to humble brag about having friends, but no. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, sorry, I forgot. That's not really a, a very good thing to be passing around. Um, so yeah, so I was explaining to him like just like literally just like the the one hundred and one, the basics of like you know anarchism, just being against unjustified hierarchies and stuff like that, and how it's all about like liberatory, uh, uh, you know, sort of stuff. And, and he said, okay, but wait a minute, like how, you know, this classic shit when you like just believe inherently in a, in a state or a, some kind of other apparatus, like the legitimacy of this state and all this shit. And he was like, how, well, how, how do you how do the cops? civil rights? And I was like, oh my <laughs> fucking God. Yeah, right, right, right. He was like, he's like, well, how, what about all the, like, all the, like, uh, what if you like let the South become anarchist as well? And then all the white people try to kill all the black people or something like that. Right. Just like in very simple terms is what he was yeah. saying. I was like, well, uh, uh, oh God, where do I start with this shit? Uh, but then I was like, well, basically, I mean, that if already they, happens. If people <laughs> yeah, exa exactly. I was like, how does it, how do you argue that's not already happening? But like, I was like, the people who are being oppressed, if they still need help, like, we can help them. Like, then, then well, we just. They, yeah. their, their mentality is of that, like, we're playing a role playing game. And so the way they talk right. about it is that, like, we're going to snap our fingers and then we're going yep. to be in anarchism and then everything else, will be, yep. right? And so yep. it's the same thing. It's like, okay, with all my critiques of, I think I have very savage critiques of primitivism. It's teleology, it's abs absurd nature culture vision, it's misunderstanding of what technology is, it's techno determinism with regard to agriculture, even though I mean, there's critiques. It, it's, it's, uh, the fact that it believes in the idea of an aestheticized pristine wilderness, wilderness mm -hmm. its fall narrative, uh, yeah. its, its yeah. Uh, glorification of poverty and peasantry, its misuse of anthropology mm -hmm. and biology, um, mm -hmm. and uh, its association in some forms with Malthusianism and uh, uh, transmisogyny and other things. Not all of them, but in some corners. And then and mm -hmm. it uh, its normative view of the body and so on. Okay? So I have yeah. all these critiques, yeah. right? Right, but, right, right. But like the um uh, uh, uh where am i going with this uh sorry oh my god sorry what was uh, it what role, playing game, role playing game 
Oh, uh, yes. Okay. Thank you so God. Thank you. Because I re read this critique by what's his, I forget my, what's his face. Uh, so he wrote something about it and he was talking about how anarcho-primitivism is ableist and anti-classist and um, whatever uh, and against uh, poor and marginalized peoples. And because, um, you know, those resources wouldn't exist for them in the anarcho-primitivist world or whatever. But the premise of that, whatever else you want to say is that assumes that we're going to snap our fingers and then tomorrow have a collapse and there yep. won't be technology and stuff yep. anymore. Right. And the fact of the, the fact of the matter is, is that that's just like not true. Anything that would, okay. First of all, either anarcho primitivism would like, if it were a thing, it, it, there would just be a collapse, but no one have, would have any control over that. So therefore it wouldn't even be ideological. But then the other option is like, let's say it was a transition to it or whatever then that means that there would be this massive period during which like all these things structurally change. So like then what, like as, as the person ourselves knows, disability is always relative to um, a culture. Yeah. Substantial number of things that we call disabilities or neurodivergent in modern industrial society are not that in, in whatever. And of course mm -hmm. the real radical point is that there never should be any of those. But the, 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 but the fact of the matter is, is that this understanding of it is this snap your fingers mentality. It just, nothing works that way. It no, just, yeah. it's just, we, we don't, we're not making D and D characters filling out our stats and then fucking, <laughs> uh, when we, and then we roll, then the DM comes in and says, okay, now we're doing anarcho primitivism. Roll your, <laughs> roll your character. Uh, right. uh, yeah, I take, um, five points in, you know, it's just like, anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, right, it's so speaking of uh, snapping your fingers and fixing everything magically, uh, right after mm -hmm. Levitt criticizes climate models for not being accurate, he tries to make the case uh -huh. that we should be convinced uh, to try spraying sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere because a guy from the patent troll company proved that it would work with a climate model. Like, literally, he, he used the same model that he just said is not accurate enough to say that global warming is real. And then he says, uh -huh. oh, but... Because of that model, uh, this guy uh, modeling it with sulfur dioxide, uh, we should definitely do that. Well, and so it's, it's, I sent a link uh, earlier in this to this uh, the first chapter of a book called Climate Shock, which is by an economist and this environmentalist. And it's you know similar. I mean, whatever, similar kind of thinking or whatever. But it's almost like almost like if this guy if this if they weren't sociopaths and actually were smart and and, care, and cared about the environment and but they, but, but they're anti geoengineering basically. And they mm -hmm. and the, and they talk about this mentality right here, and they say that this is going to become more common because because of the fact that the coalition to stop climate change and fossil fuel and stuff and so on is diffuse, while the powers that benefit from it are concentrated, and the powers that benefit from it are also going to eventually feel its effects, but then they're going to go for a cheap unilateral solution. What's the only cheap unilateral solution? Geoengineering again, because a diffuse coalition can't resist it. And so they talk about how this, like, as these costs worsen, be, because of the way this incentive structure is, that the prob probability that geoengineering is just going to happen because, I don't know, some corporation or someone ever just does it. Like, even with that, you know, it's, it increases with the if, you know, increases with the year. And it's just like he's – Levitt doesn't realize that he's saying something similar, but, like, not realizing, as you're saying, that, you know, it's contradicting the model he's very – he's using. But anyway – it's just, it's just, it's just, it, it, these, these people don't even, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these people don't even is a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, oh, I even, even the geoengineering 
the scientists, the scientists, not the insurance company people or the business school people or the or the techno utopians, the actual scientists who talk about geoengineering. First of all, many of them, even the ones who literally believe in geoengineering, say that there should be a moratorium on on practical research into it until it is totally and fundamentally pre-regulated in a strong manner. That's for, that's a common argument for them. The second one is that the, the act, all of them basically say, look, geoengineering is not a long-term solution. It is a uh, it is a bridge to save us from dying so right. that we can go to solutions that don't require it. Yeah, I think the sulfur dioxide thing, you have to continuously spray it into the atmosphere. And as yes, soon exactly. as you stop, it actually like overshoots and gets a little bit worse. Exactly. Before, it's, yeah, so it's, yeah. it's even worse because these things are self-perpetuating because by their own chemical compositions and, and physical effects, they require continue yeah. whatever. What if one year there's an economic crisis or some sort of other kind of thing and we just lose one year in our ability to regulate it and then we all and then it's over, right? So it's just it's it, it, it's the same logic, by the way, that uh, the sort of pro-nuclear people uh, ignore, which is not like that because we all know nuclear energy is safer than other like fossil fuels and whatever. Like that's and radi and radiation uh, and meltdown risk is very low. Like yes, fine. Like literally, and no one's denied that for thirty years. Not even environmentalists. So I just like whatever. But uh, that's not the point. But the situation they are proposing, where it would provide a hundred percent of our energy and the sheer number of plants that that would provide, uh, that's a that's a different situation and kind of risk and regulation than, than what we're talking now. Because even though the relative rate would be low, if you do the math, look and even assume it's the same or lower rate, the absolute rate it will start being high at that point. This is not my biggest critique of it. It's just one of them. And the point is, is that at at, at scale, if it were providing everything, um, then it needs to have a continuous, perpetual regulatory apparatus that needs to be working 24-7, 365 for basically till the end of human species, the end of the human species, because, uh, because a single correlated uh, accident, however rare, would cascade across the entire system in a very, very destructive way. So mm -hmm. it's, this, this is all, by the way, concluding with it because they're not, they don't ever talk about scale and scope. And the problem with geoengineering is it's scale and scope. Small scale geoengineering like biochar or sea fertilization is fine sometimes. And, uh, and carbon capture, I mean, biochar is the most promising of those, but, but they don't scale. So it's just, like this, this thing of like not understanding the fallacy of composition, as it were, which is that at different scales, there's different risks and compounds. Um, and I don't really want to get into the whole nuclear thing because anyway, my main critiques of it are economic mm -hmm. and uh, and social and organizational and uh, and resource based and 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 political, but not not the hippie scare ones. And I don't whatever. But but anyway, it's the same principle as with geoengineering. Uh, it, but uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, great, okay, great, great thing about economists. Here it is, great thing. They do not distinguish between, like, how do I put, okay, it, in the same thing within economics where what they do is they ass assume that your institutional and technological and metrical and political and world system is given, and then your only preferences are choices within that. You don't you, you don't have meta preferences about what that system right. should be in the first place, right? Right. Because if you did that, by the way, the models would become indeterminate. Uh, <laughs> yes. uh, but um, reasons I got um, bad grades in grad school. <laughs> uh, but uh, 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 well, not always. But because if you have preferences over the means by which you adjudicate preferences, what, what mm -hmm. you, it's, it's always going to be a path dependent outcome. But um, mm -hmm. or just not resolved. But I mean, yep. that doesn't stop the market design people. Anyway. Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> 
but there's but there's the same kind of thing because the 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 cost benefit analysis of something irreversible or con or conditional for everything else is different than the cost benefit analysis of a pure loss. So it's just like in some sociopathic sense, like you can think about like oh the money from the the resources produced by this factory save more lives than the pollution from it kills, and like that is like. I mean, horrible logic, but it's like consistent. Yeah. Like it makes sense. Yeah. It, you're comparing like units, right? So Twitter. But if the choice is between the, what's the, the, the thing, the output from this factory is eventually going to undercut the possibility of there being factories or something, that's a very different kind of risk. So it's just like with climate change, it doesn't even matter what the, sp the risk is that there won't be any more risks ever again because we'll all be dead or everything else will be. <laughs> destroyed even so like, even like the attempts unless, to like put a uh price on how much it would cost to fix climate change like it makes no sense because the only thing that has a price like ultimately is paying people to do stuff or paying for resources that were made by people being paid to do stuff and the only way that that works with climate change is paying people to fix the effects of climate change which there's it's not clear that that's possible at all well, I mean, well, so with the social cost of carbon thing, the way that works is that um, the the way they assign the values depending on it is based on the, it's not, they don't define it purely based on current and cost to other people, although they do figure that in. So they'll be like, okay, X sea level rise will cause X thing, right? And then subject to a discount rate. But in the defense it's of like some of these expected models, what lost in economic activity, right? Yes. Yeah. But 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 in defense of some of these climate models, the other way they think about it is what is the price that usage of this stuff will occur substantially low enough that we will not hit X threshold where runaway stuff will happen. So so that is, that is that is kind of it. They do some of them do price the very fact of uncertainty and irreversibility into it to their defense. The point is though that, that there's no there is no such yeah. price in a, in a, in a, in an effect. What you are actually price you're not even you're not even really what what you're not pricing you're basically like you're you're trying to it's like you're not pricing the future you're pricing the rate at which you want something to occur you know what i mean does that make yeah. sense do you understand yeah. what i'm saying or, yeah so whatever by the way you know they used to say 40 dollars a pound and the conservative estimate the left-wing estimate was like 120 uh, no, no, the right conservative 20 median estimate across was 40 and then left wingers 80 to 20. I mean, now that that's already moved up. So 40 and then 80 and then what, you know what I mean? So, so the, the one, the estimate that they used to say was the crazy liberalism one, leftism one is now closer to the average. But anyway, so that was 10 just years to ago. to wrap it up, uh, Levitt, uh, he, he cites, uh, I don't remember who it was. It doesn't even matter. But what, what's interesting, what's funny to me about this is he says that this guy who supports uh, geoengineering as a solution uh, has uh, deep environmentalist bona fides, which he considers uh, winning a trophy for best homework on the ozone layer. Uh, whereas I think most environmentalists would consider deep bona fides to be like going to jail. Uh, but <laughs> or, or, or at least like being a soil restorative farmer. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, so anyway, I, I think we've covered the book enough. Uh, very bad, not not good at all. Um, Levitt is is a dumb guy and shows how dumb economics is in general. Uh, 
Uh, well, I think it would be cool if we could do an episode like where about sort of because you know I always go off topic anyway. Yeah. Sorry about that, but uh, <laughs> but just where we could kind of do because you know a lot. I mean, I'm sure a lot of the same things you are, and so it's like you know my others see whatever all my little Twitter tricks or whatever, <laughs> whatever. But the point is that like all these things like the agricultural stuff and the technology stuff and the car stuff and the economics critique and the capitalist power and the uh, uh, the state and all this other stuff and all these, these things all really do tie together in a very nice way. So I think like, well, first of all, I don't know, just, just whatever. If I, we can ever get our podcast back on the run or whatever, first of all, we should do a joint episode. Yeah. But secondly, uh, cause you know, I think it's kind of funny cause we're actually both come from these dudes come from very different schools, but I'm on the, I'm, a, I'm the I'm the I'm the I'm the uh, centrist uh, who's a, between <laughs> but um, uh, but uh, yeah anyway I just think that this like a general explication of like uh like how you know okay oh my god almost like if free, free economics but if you were left wing and not stupid so yeah, it'd be, so it'd be so it's like it's like because the same things just keep coming up in all these different places like the misspecification of the incentives the ignor, ign, ignoring the state the the differential the the the, the categorical e unfair comparisons the um the dismissal of certain kinds of evidence while weighting other kinds the self inconsistent premises the total ignorance of power the total mm -hmm. ignorance of different kinds of measures of cost and output the total sort of misunderstanding of like ecology and technology and the state and energy and institutions and it's just like it's because it's so thorough like the ideology and its effects are it's so thorough and unifies so many things the way that it just yeah i don't know anyway yeah like stephen levitt let stephen levitt manages to be wrong on every single important topic <laughs> and very loud about it and is it but in that way he actually is kind of like the voice of a certain population oh yeah for sure like like this is how like both boomers and then like uh the the kids who parted their uh blonde hair and wore the kids look like draco malfoy and wore suits yeah, to, the, the blue suits, suits with to, the gold buttons in, on the sleeves yeah 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 and and it would carry a uh rolling, um, rolling backpack yeah, uh, backpack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, and then we're like um i'm part of the uh young republicans uh not covering society of uh america like those yeah. kids like yeah, and those and those fucks run the world. So yeah, anyway. Right. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, check out our other episodes at neighborsciencepodcast.com. Uh give us a rating on iTunes. Five stars only, please. If you're uh, gonna give us four stars or less, fuck out of here. Uh, <laughs> uh listen, you call yourself an anarchist, yet you are telling people what to do. <laughs> um, our Twitter account is at neighborsciepod. I'm at Handle of Rye. Chris is at Solidarity underscore Goth. Young Neocon is at Young Neocon. Um, let's see. <laughs> we have a Patreon and uh, we have a Teespring. We, we just gave away a shirt for our 420th follower on Twitter. Uh, so uh, that listener will be getting the shirt uh, in early October because it takes a while to print. Uh, <laughs> all right. Thanks. Bye. Uh, now I actually do have to go play D&D. Uh, nice. And be and be the exactly what I just made fun of. Anyway, uh, <laughs> talk to you later.